you know, barely three weeks before the presidential election, uh, the denomination that our congregation is a part of, the United Church of Christ, unveiled um, our new purpose and mission and vision statements. And the new purpose statement of the UCC comes from the Gospel of Matthew. This is what it is. To love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. That's the new purpose statement of the church or part. And the new mission statement is united in spirit and inspired by God's grace. We welcome all, love all, and seek justice for all. Life is really all about love and justice, isn't it? Yet, we are struggling so right now in the world to love each other, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the truth is we've been struggling for several decades in this country to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, a lot longer than several decades. But there's no question that the struggle intensified after 9-11. It can be very disheartening to look back over the last few years at the discord in this country. So many of us, maybe most of us in our own way, are filled with frustration, anger, judgment, and a bleak sense of despair, coupled with the belief that we've been disenfranchised, marginalized, and forgotten, that we're invisible. Quite frankly, we are a nation in the grip of fear, and we're held hostage by our disappointments, our hopelessness, our frustrations, our sense of invisibility, and marginalization. And we are in the grip of the resentments that have bubbled up over time. And we are seemingly incapable of monitoring and controlling our words, our actions, or our behaviors. Consequently, it's not an easy road to travel these days as a person of faith, is it? Well, you know, it wasn't much easier, if at all for the first disciples. Let's take a look at our gospel reading today about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. You know, more than a third of the teachings of Jesus that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke fit what is called a parable. And aside from providing guidance and suggestions, parables frequently use metaphorical language which allows us to more easily understand and look at really complex ideas. And the evangelists would often change the parables of Jesus or change their settings to fit the needs of the early church. So consequently, we don't know what the original parables were or to completely understand their meaning as a result. But it's true that the parables have potentially multiple meanings 
And the parable of the laborer and the vineyards is found in the Gospel of Matthew, only in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's in a section of the Gospel of Matthew where before and after, Jesus is giving very clear, direct instruction to his disciples as he ultimately heads towards death. Now, many believe that this parable was intended to show the meaning of what it's like to be in community together. I do know that this is not as well known a parable as, let's say, the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. And I maintain that the reason we're not as familiar with the parable of the labor and the vineyards is that it's not as popular as the parable of the Good Samaritan or the prodigal son. And I think the reason it's not as popular is because there's no room to pivot. And let me tell you what I mean by pivot. See, when I read a parable, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to place myself in it in as positive a light as I can. I'm the Good Samaritan. Okay? I'm the prodigal father. I am not the grumbling laborer in the vineyard. I want to pivot in this parable and, and look at it from a different way. But the reality is, if you read this parable, there is no way around it. There is no way to identify with anybody else. So we don't necessarily like to read it a great deal. We would much rather read the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. But this parable, just like those two, raises the same question. How do we reconcile this parable with our own sense that reward should be given for legitimate effort or achievement, and only for legitimate effort and achievement? How do we reconcile this parable with our image of God as a God of justice. Well, one way they say is to claim that the parable speaks about salvation and not about economic reward. Another way around the issue of injustice is to simply assert that no justice, no injustice was done because the landowner gave the first laborers exactly what they expected to receive. Or there's the explanation that the kingdom of God, things aren't earned. They're given based on need, so justice prevails. And you can also look at this parable as being about generosity and mercy of God. But the difficulty of looking at this parable with any of those interpretations is that it's hard to ignore the grumbling of the first laborers hired. Because they're the focus of the story. Because we're told that when the first laborers were paid, they grumbled against the landlord. There was an expectation that their reward would be greater because they had worked longer than anybody. Certainly, the first hire hasn't 
they have a point. But we worked a full day, and you paid this person who just came the same wage. So consequently, their expectation of what they deserved got in the way, and they couldn't see that the generosity of the landowner was good news. Because they did not get what they felt they deserved. Their expectation of what is fair and correct got in the way, didn't it? Their sense of being disenfranchised as a result of what happened got in the way, didn't it? And you see, the reality is we all interpret the world differently. And consequently, we develop different sets of expectations, beliefs, and rules. So what do we do when our expectations, which are based on how we interpret the world, don't come to pass? How do we handle the disappointment? What do we do when the first are last and we are among the, them? Do we grumble? You see, that's why we struggle with this parable. We are all the first laborers in some way or another. And we all grumble. And what makes it all the more complicated is that we all have good reason to grumble. All of us. Some more than others. We have in many ways become a nation of grumblers. We just lived through an experience that brings that right in front of our faces, doesn't it? The presidential election. Well, let's look at it for a minute when it comes to grumbling. For those who supported Hillary Clinton, they're stunned by the loss. Stunned by the seeming dislike that so many people seem to have for someone that they admire that they thought was so qualified to be president. But the truth is that many of the people who supported Obama in 2012 didn't support Hillary Clinton because they feel so lost, invisible, and disenfranchised that they couldn't do it. And yet so many people thought that she would help turn the country around. And now add to their grumbling is that she won the popular vote by a substantial amount and yet she still lost and so they're grumbling. So then you have the Donald Trump supporters. Now on one hand they're thrilled that he won because they believe he hurt them. Those that are disenfranchised and invisible, he hurt them. And he's going to fix it. He's going to bring those jobs back. He's going to build the wall. He's going to get rid of Obamacare. But they're also grumbling because they don't like being called a racist or xenophobic or misogynist. They don't think that's fair. And they're grumbling. And now they may be grumbling even more since he's already backed off on repealing Obamacare and doesn't want to talk about the wall. Then you've got the 45 plus percent that didn't even vote. 
Many of them are grumbling millennials whose hero was Bernie Sanders and who were convinced that he could have beaten Trump. And so they just didn't vote. And others are those who supported Obama, but they couldn't bring themselves to support Clinton or Trump because they feel so incredibly disenfranchised. They're the ones that feel invisible, hopeless, and despairing. And their grumbling is a cry of desperation that whether we can relate to it or not, we need to hear. Our grumbling may be different than theirs. We may not be in the Midwest that has been without work and jobs for decades and who will never have the economy that they used to have. Most of us in this room are not black. We don't understand that. We will never understand no matter how much we try. Those of us who are part of the LGBT community, no one who is straight, as much of an ally as they are, will ever understand what it's like to walk in our shoes. So the grumbling's pretty legitimate, isn't it? On everybody's part. So it raises the question, whose grumbling matters most? Who's got the best grumbling? Whose is the most important? Who should we listen to? That's why the parable of the laborers and the vineyards is so difficult. Because there's just not one clear-cut interpretation. They're just like us, don't you think? They're all grumbling. And they all have reason to grumble. We all do. But here's the reality of where we stand today. There was a pastoral letter that our denomination sent out. I've got copies in the back that I posted on Facebook. And this is what the national officers of our denomination said. Mr. Trump was able to win this election in spite of clear evidence from him, not anybody else, of racism, homophobia, xenophobia, misogyny, and Islamophobia. This was so blatant that many of his own party's leaders could not endorse him. Many who voted for him knew this, and yet their fears about what is happening in their lives, outside their distaste for his past. In their search for a leader not connected to the power base of a government that has been perceived as corrupt, insufficient, and out of touch, his populist rhetoric appealed to them. I get that. I get all of that. But then they go on to say, he must now lead a country where people of color, Muslims, women, immigrants, the disabled, and the LGBT community all feel the sting and impact of his public speech. That is not an opinion. That is an observation. And it is true. We know it. And we don't like being attached to that. We are still the laborers in the vineyard this morning. Not understanding what has just happened and not knowing what to do next and what the future brings. Because the reality is there have been documented cases of harassment against those specific groups since the election based on the rhetoric that they heard and were given tacit permission to engage in. 
Nobody likes that. Nobody. We don't want to lose what we have or not get what we want. And when that happens, we get afraid. We feel disenfranchised, threatened, at risk. We grumble, just like those laborers in the vineyard. I had a question for a minute when people's hopes about how their world should look are not met. Repeatedly, year after year, they become incredibly, exceedingly, remarkably afraid and discouraged. Fear and discouragement do funny things to people. Sometimes we cover up our fear, but we do it in a way that gives our fear a much more gracious appearance. So how do we move forward as people of faith and not get discouraged? How do we move forward and not lash out in our own fear or become paralyzed by it? How do we stand firm and support all those, including our own community, who have been verbally assaulted in this vitriolic election? Well, the answer is simple. It's just not easy. We must reawaken our eagerness to follow where Christ leads. And the Christ that I serve told us that this is where we are being led. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first man. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Here's, here's where it gets tricky. I also know that despite the sincerity of my beliefs, my passions, and my causes, that they are often at odds with people just as committed and dedicated as I am myself. Let's make it really clear on how tricky it is. We sang a new song today, Our God. And here are a couple of the verses. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. And if our God is for us, then who can ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? They're, they're powerful forces, aren't they? But let's deal in a little reality. 81% of evangelicals in this country voted for president, for someone who wants to discriminate against everyone in this room. A part of the reasoning is because they want marriage equality overturned. They want laws overturned that prevent us from being discriminated against. They want to dismantle the rights that we have gained over the last few years. That's reality. Franklin Graham the son of Billy Grant, this is what he said. 
I believe that God's hand intervened Tuesday night to stop the godless, atheistic, progressive agenda from taking control of our country. So we've got our work cut out for us because we're going to be standing singing, Our God is greater, our God is stronger, right next to people who believe that what we want is godless, atheistic, right. That's hard. In 1961, Dr. Martin Luther King used these words when he explained his principles of nonviolence. He said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And on March 31st in 1968, just four days before he was assassinated, he used these same words in the National Cathedral when he gave what would be his last sermon. And it is true that the arc of the moral universe is long. And it does bend toward justice. And each of us, in our own way, can put our hands on that arc and help bend it toward justice. Each of us. Here's what I also believe. I believe that serving Christ also demands that we speak truth to power and I believe that resistance is sacred work. I believe that Congress and the, and the House and all that, they, they've got to work together because they need to govern. But our responsibility as the people is to call them out. Our responsibility as people is to speak truth to power and to resist what we see is something we don't like. I'll be honest with you. They have to sing Kumbaya. We do not. Christ taught us that we do not. The new vision statement of the UCC is united in Christ's love a just world for all. And you know, I'll be honest with you, we're not particularly good at the progressive church. We're far too polite. Far too polite. You know, we're always wanting to parse our words and not offend anybody. That's not true in other parts of Christianity. They're not the least bit afraid to call it out. And one of the things that we're not particularly good at in the progressive church is we're not particularly good at letting our pastors have their own voice. We want to censor them and say, you know, you know, don't be talking about that. I don't agree with that. And so we need. But you called your pastors to have a voice. You didn't call them to approve of what it was before. 
I believe, brothers and sisters, that we should resist anyone and anything that speaks against a just world for all. End of story. And we're all going to do that a little different. Some of us, all we can do is give money. Others will march. Others will write. Others will organize. But it is not the responsibility of someone else. It is ours. And Christ gave it to us. We are a nation of grumblers. But we have got to find a way to move forward. And to understand that our grumbling is no more legitimate than the grumbling of the person next to us. You know, I've said this a lot of times, but I only learned two things in seminary. Which is kind of sad considering it was four years. <laughs> but one I learned was called the hermeneutics of suspicion. And that has to do with how you uh, kind of unpack sacred text. Which is something we should be doing about everything we read. We should be unpacking it. And the other thing I learned is that everything I that's out here that I see is based on who I am back here. I see the world as a white, middle-class, highly-educated, liberal, lesbian woman. Which means that I'm not going to be particularly good at seeing other people's life. And so I have to remember that when I look I have to say, Lynette, don't look with those eyes. You need to try and see this person based on who they are, not who you are. And we do, we, we're not very good at that at all. We have an expectation that everyone will behave based on how we think they should. And, you know, it's like, well, why did you do that? Why did you get a better job? Why did you what? And we wonder why we don't get along. You know, I always say that my one of my prayers when you come to Cathedral Folk is that the day may come when someone walks in here that makes you uncomfortable. That's still my prayer. I don't think it's really happened yet. I don't think we're uncomfortable at all. But I pray someday we are. And I pray someday somebody walks in and just makes a look at everything that we thought was right and correct and just and okay and comfortable. I don't want us to be a bunch of Pharisees. Talking about the rules are, how it's supposed to be, what the law says. I want us to be like Jesus say, come on, you us, come on. Let's cause a ruckus. Let's overturn the tables of the temple. Let's demand that everybody be together. That's who we follow. That's the Christ that we follow. Not the blonde hair, blue eyed thing. That is the Christ we follow.
united in Christ's love. A just world for all. May it be so. God of grace and mercy. We know we grumble. But through God, we have reason to grumble. And we know. We know we do. But somehow, dear God, we have to find a way to come together. And not demand that we all think alike and act alike and behave alike. But also insist that we all stand firm in our truth and firm in what we believe. For surely, dear God, there is room for all at your table. 